Um, So with that, let's pray. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you uh, for these scriptures that you have breathed, uh, inspired, given to us. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us as a church to stay faithful to your word. May we honor you in all things. May we humble ourselves before you and allow your word to speak as you intended to speak. Um, There are times when it's difficult for us to hear what you have to say uh, because we don't quite frankly like what it says. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us uh, to trust you, uh, to, to trust your sovereignty, to trust your plan, to trust your wisdom, to trust your thoughts that you have given to us. May you build within us a love and a passion for your word And may you be honored uh, through our time here as we study your word. May you soften our hearts and help us uh, to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would guide us today as we work through this passage. Help us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so today we're, I've mentioned that we're, we're starting the third of seven churches found in chapters two through three. Uh, the first church we covered was a church at Ephesus. Um, uh, as we look at the map here, we can see this. Uh, so down the bottom left, this is the island where uh, John wrote from, where he had his revelation. As uh, they would send the letter in, it would hit Ephesus. Ephesus was the church that was strong doctrinally. They, they maintained purity in their theology. They, they maintained purity in their practice and passion for guarding the truth um, that Paul had so clearly warned them about. But as they went through the motions, it began to shift to, to religion. And while externally they were doing good things, their heart for the Lord had grown cold. It actually says that they departed. It was like an an abandonment, that they abandoned their first love. And so they were corrected. 
Then as we would work our way up the Roman road, we came to Smyrna. Smyrna we covered last week. Smyrna, there was no complaint against this church. This was the persecuted church. This church remained faithful unto death. And it was, uh, uh, for me studying this, it gave me goosebumps, just imagining their faithfulness, imagining the persecution that they were enduring and the persecution that Jesus said was coming to them and what they were to go through, and yet they remained faithful. So today we move our way north quite a bit to Pergamum, and Pergamum was a a large city. Um, It was a strategic city. Um, it, It housed the second largest library in the entire world, The first was Alexandria, Egypt. Um, It was said that there were some 2,000 or 200,000 books in the Pergamum library. Uh, Egypt that had Alexandria, they were beginning to get jealous of the library that was in Pergamum. So they began to sort of, uh, you know, there's been export-import wars for a long time. Well, they stopped exporting parchment paper to Pergamum, which Pergamum actually comes from the word parchment. So it's like the paper city. And so they stopped exporting paper there for fear that their library was going to surpass their library. Um, This library was so coveted that Mark Antony, he purchased it, and then he gave it to his wife Cleopatra as 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 a new marriage, new wedding. When you get, see, we don't really give gifts when we get married. The gift is the marriage. And, uh, but he bought her this library when they got married. And eventually they relocated it to Alexandria. Um, so this library was huge. When I look at this city, there's, there's no way I could list all the temples that existed there. This, this was the place of temples. Temples for every Greek god that you could imagine. Um, it was overwhelming. Uh, Rome viewed this city very much as sort of a capital city, and the, the worship of Caesar was, was second to none in Pergamum. Uh, this is uh, kind of tied to the worship of Caesar. Uh, human sacrifices were very common. So if you wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar, they had a huge, I'm trying to remember what kind of metal it was, it was a bronze bull that they would put humans into, It's kind of like the timing of this on a barbecue day. (laughs) And they would slow roast the human until they died. And then all of the flesh burned away. And then at the end, the bones would remain. And then they they would pull out the bones and they would make jewelry. And these... This jewelry was, was, was prized because there was something special about these bones. Um, there was one temple that I'm going to attempt to say the name. It's Asclepion, I think is how you say it. Um, this is known to be the birthplace of modern medicine. Um, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's some questions debated about where did the symbol for modern medicine, if you see an ambulance, you'll see the little stake with the snake around it. Someone say, oh, that goes back to Moses during the plagues. A lot of people says it actually goes back to Ascalon. And, and it was almost like a psychiatric ward. And so they had a series of treatments that they could do for the individual. Um, 
But if those failed, the, like the, the atomic bomb of treatments was they would put you into the temple at night and you would go to sleep there and they would lock you in and they would release thousands of non-venomous snakes and they would crawl all over you. Sounds like a nightmare, not, a, not, not modern medicine. And so it's believed that the, the, the symbol for medicine came from this temple by some, but it's, it's with anything that old historically, there's going to be arguments and discussions over where do they think it came from. Um, the point of all of this is this was a, a, a very strategic city. This was a very important city by Rome. It was respected by Rome. This city held... Um, had certain privileges that other cities didn't have. Um, and, and, and so very much it was viewed sort of within this region of, of, of not Greece, but in Turkey and the region of the, the churches. It was sort of viewed more like a capital city um, than, than any other city. Um, and, as we, and it will factor into our study. So the first thing we see, the one who has a sharp Two-edged sword. Now remember back to chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, with every church, there's, a, there's an image that's drawn from the original image of Christ that was seen in chapter 1. And as John describes this description of Jesus that he sees, uh, we see in verse 16, I think it was, yes, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And so from that description of Jesus, this sword, it doesn't say like a sword. It's, it's one of the ones where it says that when he looked up, there was a sword, a, a two-edged sword uh, coming out of his mouth. Um, this is the facet that this church, Pergamum, gets of Jesus. Now it's interesting that in Pergamum, I mentioned that there were certain privileges that were given to the city that, that were unheard of in other cities. And so in Pergamum, the proconsul, he had special authority from Jesus that he could execute whoever he wanted on the spot. He carried a sword, this two-edged sword that is described coming out of Jesus' mouth, and this man could be the jury, the judge, and the executioner. So you could see him, he could find you guilty on the spot and chop off your head. It would be done for you on the spot. And so... For Jesus to enter in this church being described as the one with this sword coming out of his mouth, it speaks of Jesus' authority and that his words carry authority more powerful than any person, any Caesar, any other religion or false god that they had in this city. And Jesus says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Um, this is interesting. Uh, what, does he, what does he say he knows? He says, I, when we read this, the, the, the connotation is just like, I know where you guys live. You live in the Beltway. You live in Las Vegas. You, you, you live in, in the heart of Satan's throne. I know you're not in a little Christian bubble. I, I know that you live in a place where you're going to face persecution and challenges and for you to stand for me is not easy. And he says, and you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my, my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. 
And so they held fast to Jesus' name. This is encouraging. Like in the, in the midst of persecution coming towards these believers in Pergamum, they didn't bow. They, they didn't concede the authority of Jesus' name. They didn't back away from the faith of standing firm for the gospel. Even in the days of Antipas, who we know very little about historically, it's believed that this Antipas would, would have been one of the guys who stood firm for the gospel to the point to where he was one of the individuals that was placed in this, this metal drum that they slow roasted to death. And he says, even in the days where my faithful witness, which is interesting, witness in the Greek is martyrs, which is where we get the word martyr from, that the, the word to, to be a witness for Christ in modern language, it's shifted to become known as what a martyr is. And so he says, even in the days when the church was facing persecution, you didn't back down. You didn't give up the faith. You didn't uh, disregard my name. Um, Swindoll talks about the church in this way. He says, let me illustrate this with a modern analogy. While everyone else was moving to the suburbs, the Christians in Pergamon were committed to remaining in the inner city. They decided to stay put in the midst of the noise, the violence, the corruption, and the temptations to shine as a light in the darkness of the city. Now, when I look at this verse 13, um, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny the faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So we, 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 we see this, Satan's throne, where Satan dwells. This is where you live. You didn't back down. I, I, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I don't want to like... But a thought I've had, you know, and I don't, this isn't, I don't want to get political. It's always like this. So don't read this the wrong way. Like, like California is a disaster, Right? But we're not getting political. But, but fiscally, ideology-wise, our state isn't like a, a bastion for Christian conservative thought. And when I, when I read this passage, the thing I, my, my conviction that, con- that continues to grow in a day where Christians are exiting our residents in mass because they want to, you know, and this is where I'm not like bashing on anybody. I get like you, they want to be somewhere where it's more fiscally conservative. They want to go somewhere where it's more uh, comfortable as a Christian. When I read this passage, I'm reminded, like I'm not in San Diego by accident. I know this is my birthplace. This is not my birthplace. My birthplace is up the coast a little bit more, but, but I grew up in San Diego. But I'm here by choice and by conviction. Like, I believe that God has me here to be a light. And then as California gets darker and we see this exodus of Christians, I see this passage saying to the Christians that remain in the dark place, stand firm. Thank you. They need the light. These people that don't know Christ, they need us. 
If this state just loses all the Christians, who's going to be the light? We support missionaries around the world and Europe and dark places, but we ourselves live also in a place of darkness, in a place where the knee is not bending to Christ. And no matter how hard or how uncomfortable it is to us, we, I personally want to have the conviction that I'm here to honor my Lord and I want to reach my neighbors that don't know Christ. And the church in Pergamum, they remained and they stayed. <laughs> but they're going to have the but. It's not over for them. This... Um, this is a church, I don't like this church, if I'm going to be honest with you guys. I mean, I don't like this section of Scripture. If I step on anybody's toes here, it's not me. My toes are stepped on. This, this is one of those really, really convicting, like, oh, it hurts. Jesus, this is not like, I'm not using Jesus in a profanity. I'm using, like, Lord, don't, like, this is really, you're hitting too close to home here. Like if the church in Ephesus held firm to doctrine, held firm in their core beliefs, they hated the deeds of the, the Nicolaitans and they were firmly planted and they were not budging. This church is on the other end of the pendulum where they, they, they still had a love for Jesus, but they were giving doctrinally, they were, they were compromising is the key word. If you think Pergamum, think compromise. And we're not talking compromise in the good sense, like husband and wife, where do you want to eat? Well, I really want to, to go to X place. And the wife says, oh, I really want to go to this place. Well, how about this third option that we both, oh, yeah, that's great. Like, that's good compromise. Compromising and letting somebody share my French fries, that's compromise. That's good <laughs> compromise, you know, like this is, <clears throat> this is bad compromise. This is where, uh, where an aircraft has a fracture and it's compromised. The integrity of the craft is compromised and it's ignored and we'll deal with it another day and then that aircraft explodes in the middle of air because there was a small compromise that was let go and ignored. This is the compromising church that disregarded doctrine, disregarded instructions of the Lord, and allowed little things to creep in. He says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. And he also says, so you have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. <clears throat> so Nicolaitans were brought up in Ephesians. Jesus commends the church in Ephesus that he all, they also hated the deeds of the, the Nicolaitans. And so he applauds them. And, and during that message, I, I, I shared with you that there's difficulties. Like this is that saying to, to hate sin and to love the sinner is a difficult thing to, to live out, especially in our day and age. It's, you either do it with um, isolation and distance or you do it with, with compromising core beliefs or, or misperception. I had it in my notes. I had something really well thought out in that message. I should have thought ahead here, but this isn't easy. 
And so he tells a story. He mentions the Nicolaitans, and he also tells a story about Balaam. Now, we're not going to read the whole story because it's far too long to read the whole entire story, but in Numbers chapters 22 through 25, and then if you extend out to 31 verse 16, there's a story of this prophet Balaam. It's an interesting story. Balaam is kind of like this mercenary prophet or something. Like He somehow has a connection of God that he can prophesy, and he's sort of for hire, and he's willing to kind of do things and so he's approached by uh, the, the, the king, I think it was a king, Balak, of, of the Moabites. And, and this king or whoever wants him to curse Israel. So this, this message comes to him and he says, I'll give it a shot, you know, like I, uh, I can only do what God allows me to do. But what's, you know, what's your price? Things are worked out. He goes there one time. And it's like he wants to curse the nation of Israel, and he just can't do it. It's like what comes out of his mouth is not what he wants to have. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I told you I can only do what God allows. <laughs> so this happens twice. And then on the third time, they send more money to the guy, and they say, okay, we really want you to do this. And in there, there's a story of the donkey who speaks to him, trying to, like, you know, wake him up. And on the third time, they take him up to this mountaintop, and he's like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to curse Israel. May the Lord bless Israel and all of a sudden he's like, I don't know what's happening here. And then at the end of that chapter, starting the next chapter, I think it's 26, all of a sudden the Moabite women start, start sneaking into Israel and doing inappropriate things. And the people of Israel are falling for it. And it's not directly said right there that this was Balaam's plan, but it's, a, it's credited to him that he came up with this plan. Like, Okay, I, I, I clearly, I, God is constricting what I'm able to do. And I can't, I, like, I can't just curse the nation of Israel because God won't let me. But I got a better plan. Let's just sneak some beautiful women with their gods through the back door. And it might not happen instantly, but over the course of time, this nation will receive the curse of God because they turn from him. And it happens under their nose slowly. And so here we have this church that they're standing firm for the faith. They're not denying the name of Jesus. But there's fractures that are coming in through the back door and there's, there's compromise um, so the implication is that there's compromise within this church that's happening through immorality and idolatry to best understand like what the issue is is to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you'll hold your place in Revelation and let's go over to 2 Corinthians so that we get at the heart of what they're being confronted by. This, this is the idea of like, what's happening here is that it's toleration and compromise and toleration and being accepting. Like this is, these are, these are like really key words in our culture today. 
And when we look at this passage, this passage should really hurt us. I mean, it, like, or maybe it's just me. Be- because we want to be nice. We love people. And in many ways, the church, it hasn't been equipped or prepared to, to protect itself. Because sin is fun. Sin, it looks good. I mean, it looks harmless on the surface. And so this church faces the accusation that they're confronting the culture while simultaneously being conformed to it. And if there isn't a more like apt description of the church at large today in the United States, that we have there that, that compromised churches everywhere. And, and, and these seven churches, it's not for us to pick one and identify one. Because if I wanted to pick one, it's like, oh, I want to be the Ephesians. That's me. That's like stand true for doctrine. I have I have, you know, I have like uh introvert tendencies so it's like let's keep all the bad people out let's have our own little like christian commune do our thing that sounds wonderful to me i like the german blood it's like give me rules just give me the checklist we'll obey the checklist i'll impose the checklist on people really simple but really the thing is from all of these seven churches every one of like, we, sh- we should see how we have tendencies for each of them. And so here I told you to go to First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter 6. I didn't forget about that. And so the issue at hand, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are all the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is something we don't like to talk about. He says, there's no, this, this is oil and water. There's God and then there's the world. There's the flesh. And, and if you're in Christ, you've been separated for his purpose. This is holiness, separated for a purpose. And, and so in their case, going back to Revelation, when they talk about Balaam and, and the teaching of Balak and dealing with these things sacrificed to idols, to the church in Pergamum, there's too many temples to name. There were idols everywhere and in everything. And the most prominent was the one to like Caesar. Caesar. 
not to bow your name to Caesar or not to conform to the things of Caesar would, would literally get you slow roasted over a fire. He also says acts of immorality at the very end of verse 14. This is the word porneia, which that Greek word needs no explanation. It's this wide net that casts over all sexual immorality, not just infidelity within marriage, but everything. It's like the catch-all to sexual immorality. And that was tied together in their worship. And it's tied together in our worship in the United States. You can't turn on the TV without seeing stuff. Praise the Lord for DVR. Like, I mean, I say that, so you're just fast forward, you know. And then this Nicolaitans, we don't know what, what was happening there, but, but the, the issue that's up front is there was compromise. Um, eating things sacrificed to idols. Like Paul in his teaching, he, he says, hey, listen, if you're somewhere and you find out like, that the meat you got, like, you know, if you want to get John all fired up, he got a great deal on the meat. He's all stoked about it. He's like, I got a really good deal on this tri-tip. I'm like, and the equivalent would be suddenly like, John's like, I got a really great deal and I'm doing all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, uh-oh, hey, pastor, I just found out that this meat was sacrificed meat at the temple. What do you want to do with it? I'd be like, I'm still good with it. There's only one God, you know, but <laughs> announce it to the church. Or, or the reality was, like, I'm talking a big game here. I'd probably say, hey, we can't use that meat because there are some in the church that would, like, it would be too hard for their consciences because there are people who came out of that false religion. So send it back. Go to Costco. <laughs> Get the good stuff, you know. Um, but the idea is that they... they there were things that were wrong, and they say, well, I love these guys. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compromise. Like, how, like, how hard is it to say Caesar's Lord? We're not talking about God. We know he's not God. We know that there's only one God. So we're like, what, what's the big deal if I just say Caesar's Lord? And these small Compromises lead to big catastrophic failures. We look at unequally yoked in holiness. There's so many things that could be lumped into this. I think it all generates to Satan's first game. Back in Genesis 3.1 when he saw Eve and the tree with whatever fruit was on that tree. And she said, oh, no, we can eat from everything, but, but this one tree God said not to eat from. And saying, surely God didn't say you couldn't eat the fruit. Come on. I guess you're right. I have. Give me a piece. I'll take it, you know. Like, let's eat it. And, and this has been going on over and over and over, a challenging of what God said. And we see it in the church all of the time. And so ultimately, the word of God is being challenged. And I think that's interesting that this one is, this church is that the sword is coming out of the Lord's mouth. In the context of this place where the proconsul could execute people with the same sword. And so what, what, 
what things get challenged that God says, well, I don't, we don't only have so much time here. Start with who Jesus is. I get in arguments all the time. Like literally my, my, my family is, like I'm in, you know, my brother, my nephew, like we're, we're, they're not believers and we have like going back and forth and my brother's making, he's like, yeah, yeah, you're the Jesus one. You're always like throwing Jesus in our face and we're like pushing back. It's all real loving in a very unchristian way. And they're like, yeah, I remember that time when so-and-so sent out this thing about some like religion and you replied all that you'd come to faith in Christ. You're such a whack job. And I'm like, hey, you know, it's what I believe. Jesus is Lord. We can't compromise on that one. But there's a temptation within me to like my Buddhist family members to say like, yeah, you, you, your views are a little bit different than mine and I know you think Jesus is just kind of like a prophet. It'd be so easy to, to compromise on that point for the sake of maintaining some relationships. Gender. Now, this is a whole gamut of like things that we could compromise on. Like, like does boy-girl mean boy-girl? When the Bible talks about rules within the scripture, does the Bible really mean it? it's an antiquated document, right? Does it not in our culture? Our culture is different. It's like, well, Paul to Timothy says that it was a creation thing. These are areas where, where culture pushes back, and then the church has an obligation to say, is this, and I'm not saying the church isn't wrong on some point, but, but, but what does the scripture say? And do we allow it to say what it says, or do we compromise on points? Uh, relationships, marriage. Again, a, a whole gamut. What is marriage? What, what do relationships look like before marriage and the dating? I can tell you how many young people I see that unequally yoke themselves in a situation only to be 10, 15 years down the road in a horrible situation that they can't find their way out of because, yeah, oh, what's the big deal? God didn't really say it was that important to be. Like, he cares more about my happiness, right? Yeah, he cares about your happiness. Just wait till you, you know? That's a whole other thing, you know? Like, how do Christians handle pornography? Oh, it's not that bad. Nobody gets hurt in it, right? Language, how do we speak? How do we use our language? Ephesians 4 and 5 are really convicting. No just humor. Like, like, how do we conduct ourselves in a world that's dark? Entertainment, we can go on and on there. Money. Gathering with the saints, as Hebrews chapter 10 talks about. Like, what, what, what priority is worshiping with the saints as God commands? Like, do not forsake the, the gathering with one another. What things take priority over church and, and being here? And I'm not saying this to, like, uh, build attendance. Like, I'm saying, like, the Scripture makes it really clear that Sunday is the Lord's Day. And, and obviously there's circumstances where it's like, well, like, if you want to worship on a Friday because you're in the Middle East and that's, like, the day, like, that's fine. But to me, there's things, and it's an inconvenience to say, no, I've devoted this day to worship, and I'm not going to compromise on this point because 
God's word has made it clear that his followers are to worship him. And I think of guys, I can't, like, I had his name and I lost it, but, you know, Chariots of Fire guy. Somebody help me out. Uh, Eric Little, it's like right on the tip of my tongue. But it's like there are followers of Christ who said, no, I'm committing to worship, even if it costs me the Olympics. I don't even know how to, if I was in Eric, like a friend of Eric, go, Eric, come on, man. Like, you love the Lord. You've done all this stuff. This is the Olympics. Certainly you can miss church or just go to church at night. Run your event, then worship. It's so easy to compromise in our thinking and on our actions to accommodate not only the culture but our flesh. It's not just the outside, it's within me. I don't know if you're convicted, but this past, like, I am so, so convicted. I would have been happy to move on five minutes ago. But I wouldn't be faithful to this accusation against this church. And this church, the accusation, it's so close to home. Like in the heart, in my thinking. From the Satan whisper, is it really that big of a deal, Gunner? Then I hear Paul's words in Romans 7, the things that I do or the things I don't want to do and the things that I want to do, I don't do. Like this wicked man that I am, my flesh pulls me away from God. So what does Jesus say in verse 16? He says, therefore, repent. Change your mind. Change your thinking. The the word repent deals with your thoughts. And Don gave an illustration like a few months ago that I thought was really good. And he said, repenting is like missing your, uh, your exit on the freeway. And I've noticed that there's some freeways that you can miss your exit, and then there's one like right there, and you can boom, flip around and U-turn. But the ones where you're like really running late, and you miss your exit, and it's like, next turnaround, 17 miles! I'm supposed to be there in two minutes! Like, and you're looking on the side, is there any way I can like go off-roading and get around? That's kind of how repentance looked in my life. It's like in my mind, in my thinking, I was agreeing with God, but it took, I was so ingrained and embedded in culture and lifestyle that it took me what felt like an eternity to get my life turned around. But in my thinking, I repented. My life eventually caught up. And some people have the ability that they repent and they change like that. But I would give warning, like on the unequally yoked, Make sure that there's time if, with people. He says, therefore, I repent as a church. Like in this whole context, it's a church. Not necessarily the individual, but the church is the individual. So we kind of have to read this two ways. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember that pro-council of per- per- Pergamum that had the authority to be the jury, the judge, and the executioner like that? He says, I'll come quickly. Don't mess with my word. And when I look at this, the thing that I just all week that I've had in my mind, is God is God and I am not. And how that applies is I read stuff in the Bible and the Bible says this and I don't like it. I don't want to consent my life to it. I don't want to go that way. And it comes to, my thoughts aren't his thoughts. His ways aren't my ways. 
And so if he tells me to do this, even though it doesn't make sense, I, he's my savior. He's the creator. He's the one who made me. He's the one that gives me life and breath. He's the one that saved me out of death. So who am I? So I want to honor him with my life, and I, and I need him to change me from within so that I go that direction. And he says in verse 17, He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And over and over and over again, I keep hearing the words of Hebrews. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Back in October of 2009, there was a story. I don't know if you guys remember it. Um, there was a Northwest Airlines. I don't even think Northwest Airlines exists anymore. I don't know if this incident factored into it, but there was uh, two pilots that were flying their plane. I think they were going to Chicago, if my memory serves correct. And they overshot the runway by 150 miles. There was no problem. Plane was flying perfectly. Everything was safe. Uh, I have a pilot friend that he, I think he might have actually worked for this airline and he got the, what had happened was everything was fine. The church got, or not the church, the pilots got complacent. And they were flying along, autopilot, everything was kosher. And they had implemented a new like scheduling program on the iPad so the pilots could, you know, work over their schedules. So the pilots had their iPad out and Actually, it's a bad story. We should use this another uh, tablet, you know, <laughs> like I'm using. Um, and they're kind of, they're going over the scheduling, showing the one pilot, showing the other pilot how to do, work his new schedule if he wants to get certain flights and routes and stuff, and this is how you do it. The, the tower, flight such and such, this is the tower. Are you okay? What's going on? Are you safe? They don't hear any of it. They're lost in their own wheel world, asleep at the wheel, shooting past the airport. And the church does this all the time. We think we're okay. We think we've attained maturity. We think that we're now good enough. And we can stop paying attention. We can stop listening to God because did God really say that? Does God really want me to do you fill in the blank? He says, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The author of Hebrews, one of the warnings in chapter 2, the first four verses says, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He says, if God has revealed this to us, let us not drift. Let us not go a course. Let us not be strayed by the culture or our own thinking that it's really not that bad, big of a deal. It's not hurting anybody. Then he says, to him who overcomes, 
To him I will give some hidden manna. Now we don't really have time to go there, but if you were to go back on your own time and look at John chapter 6, so in the whole story of the Old Testament, right, there's the tabernacle and there's some, the manna story and the thought was that, uh, or Moses put some manna in the tabernacle and then it kind of like, I'm not sure where that goes, my, my, my mind draw, goes blank um, and we don't have time to go back to it. But then in John chapter 6, they're asking Jesus, hey, you know the manna that God provided to our fathers and in this whole exchange, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am that manna. And so here's this, this promise that as you overcome, as you correct, the, the mercy of God is all through Revelation. And he says, I will give some the hidden manna of himself, the bread of life. And I will give him a white stone, another situation. Okay, there's, a, there's so many different options of the story. Some of the cool stories, there's probably about five different options of what this white stone meant. They all mean the same thing, but they could, maybe they come from all of them. The one is if you were on trial and you were found guilty, a black stone would be sort of unveiled. And that would be how they would reveal to you your guiltiness. A white stone meant you're innocent. If you were a gladiator fighting in the games, and you fought well enough to where they said, okay, you can be released, you would be given a white stone with your name on it, and that's how you could exit the fighting arena, which is pretty cool. That's what I'm going with just because of the cool factor. And if you stand firm and you protect yourselves from these things, he says, I will give to him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows who receives it. So I don't know how this all works, but somehow there's a white stone and it seems to be the stone of you're acquitted. You're not held guilty. As we all know, with some trials, acquitted doesn't necessarily mean innocent. And none of us are innocent. We are all savers. We are all saviors, sinners that are saved. And so we have this stone of acquittal with apparently a new name. And it's just it's this beautiful picture of God's mercy. And we would be wrong leaving here to make sure, have you received your acquittal stone? Have you trusted in Christ for salvation? It's not by your works that you're saved. Your salvation will change your works. There's no question in my mind. But we come to him with faith. We're told that he did what we can't do. And it's a gift that is offered to us. So as I look at this church, this compromising church at Pergamum, he says, repent. Be a little bit more like the Ephesians. Don't lose your love for me. Don't, don't lose this. But stand firm to doctrine. And the late Adrian Rogers, he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he said it is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with the multitude. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, talks about, or verse 12 through 14, 14 talks about uh, he who thinks he can stand confidently, like humble yourselves because you're about to fall. And then we're told that no temptation has overtaken you, that it's not common to man, and God will provide a way out to it. And like this, this encouragement to draw near to God, whatever struggle you're going through, whatever uh, compromise that's entered your heart that you're struggling with, God will help you through it. It's the little fractures that cause the biggest problems.
And so the, the, the call today is to guard against these little compromises that lead to catastrophic failures. So as the Hebrew authors, chapter 10, verse 23 says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And Father, I do... Lord, first and foremost, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the cleansing and forgiveness that is available to us through Christ. For those of us who have received this gift, we thank you. Father, I ask that you would help us never to lose sight of the great cost that our salvation came with, that your son gave his life and that the wrath that was due all sin was placed upon him and that he absorbed it fully. And as we come to faith in him, our sins are cleansed. Our conscience is cleansed. It was a once and for all sacrifice. And Lord, as we look at this church at Pergamum, I know that I see and feel areas in my own life where compromising seems like the easier or better thing to do. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to examine our own lives. Lord, help us to see places of compromise in our thinking, in our actions. And when these compromises are big, I know earlier in my Christian life, Lord, it's really difficult to make some big changes in order to uh, facilitate holiness and devoting my life to you. For those of us that have been walking with you a little bit longer, I, I think that the compromises are harder to see and easier to justify and so we prove to be more difficult in our getting right with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us your eyes to examine our hearts, examine our priorities, examine the direction of our life. Father, help us to seek you so that these repairs can be made. Lord, we want to honor you, your name, and the gospel with all that we are. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us in this journey. Lord, as we celebrate today with a barbecue and we're about to eat a bunch of good food, as we're all gathered here together, I just want to thank you for the food that we're going to receive. We thank you for the, the blessing that we have to fellowship in this way. We thank you for those who prepared food for John who, and uh, for John who is out there barbecuing and preparing this meal for us. Uh, we ask that you would Make sure that we thank them for their service to us. We love you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.